Hello and welcome to what is now, I think, series four of the Meg podcast. Um, back from a bit of a summer break. I think we possibly took a longer break than we uh, might have planned. But uh, so we'll take that break to be a, a gap between two different series. So uh, tonight, um, I say tonight as ever, that's because we're recording in the evening. When you're listening, who knows? Anyway, we have uh, just the usual team is here. We have Matt Haywood, Richard Jeffrey Cook, and myself. So, good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Good evening. So as 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 ever, Matt has is providing the technical support on this. Um, so, thank you to him for his continued support and doing that, and of course his valuable contributions. Um, Richard, of course, we know what his contributions are, and I will thank him in advance for what he's going to do because I, I do know that the history stuff he covers. It takes quite a bit of work, actually. So, uh, you know, just to condense some of these long tranches of history into a manageable chunk is is quite an achievement. And on that note, we finished the last podcast of Series 3 about halfway through the Hundred Years' War, for those of you who remember. And for those of you who don't, please go back and listen to the first half of the Hundred Years' War and the list that we presented then. So, tonight, Richard will... um, as ever, give us, as I just said, the potted history of the second half of the Hundred Years' War, from where he left off to the end of the war, I assume, Richard. Thank you, Nick. Yes, yes indeed. And after that, we shall bring you another three army lists from the war. Obviously, last, last time we covered the English and the French, so we're going to look at three army lists that aren't English and French, although I suspect they've got quite a lot of Englishmen or Fre- and or Frenchmen in them. Um, and so, and at the end, maybe we'll have a bit of time just to chat about other Meg-related stuff. But as I said, there's quite a lot of history. So with no further ado, I'll hand over to Richard for his ever-informative history section. Thank you, Nick. So when we finished our history in part one, The French had been defeated and nearly half of France was in the English hands due to the Treaty of Bretigny. Uh, So in 1360, Charles the Wise, this is Charles V of France, comes to the throne. His reign essentially is the story of the defeat of the Black Prince and Edward III. His nickname actually is better translated as Charles the Erudite. Uh, Carolus Sapiens, I think it was in Latin, something like that. Um, And although he was physically frail, he was a genuine intellect. And he comes up with the tactics that he sort of managed to um, defeat the English. So at this time, uh, Brittany was actually in civil war. Um, There were two rival claimants to the duchy. And in 1364, the English candidate actually kills the French candidate and that ends the civil war. But the following year, he then, to secure his Dutch, he pays homage to Charles, King of France, which just shows you how complicated the uh, feudal structures were in uh, France at that time. Uh, Also in 1364, the King of Navarre, Charles the Bad, I do love the names they give the rulers at this time, uh, actually revolted (laughs) 
Um, and this was mainly because he'd been de deprived of his Burgundian inheritance by the former French king, King John, who had give, given it to his son instead. Um, however, his forces uh, were defeated at Cocherel in May 1364, and the French then overran the Navarrese strongholds in Normandy. Uh, really, from that point forwards, Navarre was no real danger to the French kingdom. Uh, the biggest problem at this moment in France was actually the free companies, uh, basically unemployed veterans who were wasting all the country without cause, as it's described. Um, the majority, actually, of the free company uh, routiers, as they were known, uh, were probably Gascons, uh, but amongst them were uh, Bretons, Spaniards, Germans and English. Uh, most of the captains were actually English, not all, but most of them. Uh, and the power these um, groups wielded was quite significant. Um, cities were terrorised. Um, the Pope at Avignon was threatened and almost held hostage. Um, and this was a big problem. So Charles actually got an opportunity uh, when uh, Henry Trastamara uh, wanted to take the throne of Castile uh, and usurp the king at the time, Pedro the Cruel. Um, so what he did was he gathered all the, as many as the routiers he could find uh, and sent them to support uh, Henry. Um, uh, this would have worked brilliantly, but uh, in uh, th uh, 1367, uh, the Black Prince actually defeated Henry at the Battle of Najera, I think it is in Spanish. Um, uh, and in fact, in 1369, the Trastamara faction actually get their own back, killed Pedro and seized Castile. Um, so um, this resulted in many of these uh, free company soldiers actually heading back to France. Um, from the Black Prince's point of view, this campaign was a bit of a disaster, mainly because Pedro was unable to pay the 600,000 Florence campaign expenses that uh, the Black Prince actually incurred. Um, during this time, the Black Prince was actually ruler in Guyenne. That's the southern bit of Aquitaine uh, in Gascony. And his rule really in Guyenne was not a huge success. Um, to fund his wars, he increased the demands for taxes. Um, and this basically alienated the Gascons. Um, sufficiently so that in 1369, Charles... Uh, King of France decided he was strong enough to defy Edward uh, and in uh, June of that year actually declares war. Um, and by November of 1369, he's actually confident enough to announce that he has confiscated Aquitaine from the English. Um, the English actually are um, struggling actually to have the finances to raise troops and they resort to employing um, the routier from the free companies 
basically on chevauchets. These are rides just devastating the French countryside. Um, in response, Charles actually develops and uses um, sort of Fabian tactics, actually um, deliberately um, destroying uh, or removing any supplies to strong points before they can be taken by the free companies. Um, this doesn't do a great deal for the French peasantry uh, who suffer from this, but uh, does um, frustrate the English tactics. And in fact, the French make steady gains such that by the end of 1373, the English hold little more than Guyenne, Calais and a garrison in Normandy. Um, this is um, the French success is enough that in January 1374, a truce covering Aquitaine was agreed, and this truce was then extended in 1375. Uh, by this time, Edward III is, is getting aged and he actually dies in 1377. I think he was about, aged about 65, which at the time was quite an old age. Um, and he's succeeded by the Black Prince's 10-year-old son, Richard of Bordeaux. By this time, the Black Prince had also died. Um, despite this um, gap in succession, the war actually restarts in June of that year, uh, although neither side really gains any sort of upper hand. Uh, in September 1380, Charles V who had never been particularly well, also dies. Um, so you have a situation where the kings of both England and France are actually minors. But this doesn't actually stop the wars. As well as in England and France, wars were to break out in Ireland, Scotland, Spain, Portugal and Flanders. So the whole of the West, Western European countries are actually um, at war. Um, to pay for this, um, high taxation is raised in both England and France, and this actually leads to uh, revolts in, in both countries. Um, the, the wars sort of drag on with um, no real outcome, and a truce is actually only signed again in 1389. Um, by this time, actually, both kings had actually taken power and appointed their own ministers. Um, a further truce is actually agreed in 1398, and this truce is supposed to last for 28 years. However, uh, by this time, Richard had um, overcome the war party so he's actually in total control in England, but he becomes so tyrannical um, that in 1399, Henry Bolingbroke is able to depose Richard and ascends the throne as King Henry IV. With me so far? Um, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're getting to Shakespeare play territory now, aren't we? Coming soon, yes. <laughs> so... Um, in France, the situation's a bit um, more dire. Um, in 1392, actually, Charles VI, um, son of Charles V, he actually goes mad. 
Um, and uh, when he's ill, the king is ruled, uh, the, the kingdom is ruled by uh, his uncle, I think, Philip, Duke of Burgundy. However, the king's favourite was uh, Louis, Duke of Orleans. So when the king has periods of sanity, um, France becomes ruled by Louis. Um, I have to say, both were uh, notorious for diverting the French treasury into their own pockets, and France rapidly deteriorates into two factions. Um, one, the Burgundians, the other um, becomes known as the Armagnacs due to um, Bernard Countervang Armagnac, who's actually his daughter marries uh, Charles, the son of Louis, Duke of Orleans. So um, in 1404, Louis um, starts a campaign to conquer Guyenne. Uh, bear in mind that a truce that was supposed to last 28 years had uh, been signed only five years earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah, 28 years. Yeah, timekeeping wasn't very good in those days. Um, so Henry IV, um, he's still desperately short of money. This is a recurring theme throughout the Hundred Years' War. And he can only send limited help to defend Guyenne. Uh, but actually, the Guyanese um, remain loyal. They they fear French rule over English rule. Um, so that sort of drags into uh, a, a, another war of attrition, basically. Meanwhile, the French themselves actually send a thousand men at arms and 500 crossbowmen to help the Welsh rising of Owen Glandau. Uh, in but um, this force actually is pretty is really too small to be of much use to the Welsh and has no real impact. And, um, I, but it's it's one of the few occasions where a French force um, actually lands um, in Britain. Um, 1404 is quite a busy year because in that year Philip of Burgundy. Um, dies and he's succeeded uh, by his son uh, John the Fearless. Um, so um, John, however, is equally determined to uh, rule France. And on 23rd of November 1407, uh, Louis is actually assassinated on the order of Duke John. Um, so from, this is the final straw and France is now really divided into two armed camps, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. Um, although at, at the time in 1407, the Armagnacs controlled Paris, um, by 1411 they've been ousted and the Burgundians uh, are actually in control. And the Armagnacs actually decide to besiege the city. Um, John is um, looking for aid and he actually offers to marry his daughter to the Prince of Wales. And so an English army actually comes and breaks the Armagnac uh, 
blockade of Paris. However, the army next think this is a good idea and in 1412 they invite the English to assist them. Uh, unfortunately, the English arrive too late and the army next have already been defeated at this time. So the English decide uh, let's launch a chevrochet and raid the French countryside. Um, the French um, princes, the, sort of the major dukes, decide, uh, well, we'll pay them off. This, however, proves to be a big mistake because uh, by paying them off, the English realise, oh, there's lots of money to be had raiding France. <laughs> um, and it encourages them to return. Um, so um, the following year, 1413, Henry V ascends the throne. Um, by this time, uh, the Armagnacs had actually seized control and uh, John uh, basically retires to his own duchy of Burgundy. Um, but Henry is not bothered by any of this and he decides to pursue an aggressive policy and basically uh, not only demands that all the terms of the Treaty of Brittany are actually enforced, which will give him about half the French country, um, but also he actually demands extra territories on top of that. <laughs> um, not surprisingly, the French don't agree to this. And so in August 1415, Henry sets sail from England to capture Harfleur. His plan being basically to use this as a base for con conquering Normandy and then taking Paris. Um, the town falls in September, um, but in the sort of five weeks, something like that, that Henry is besieging uh, Harfleur, he actually loses about a third of his army. Um, many from casualties from the siege, but also uh, more probably from disease. Um, dysentery is is rife throughout the English army. Um, rather than calling it a day, um, Henry now decides to go on a chevouchet, um, deciding to march via Paris to um, to the 160 miles to Calais. Um, quite clearly, he didn't expect any French opposition. Uh, and unbeknownst to him, the Dauphin had actually assembled a large army and decides to intercept the English. Uh, I won't go through the details of the campaign, but the two armies meet at Agincourt. Um, the, uh, Henry's in a pretty desperate state. He is hugely outnumbered um, and his, a lot of his army is pretty ill. Um, however, it's been raining and the battlefield um, that where the French meet the English is an extremely muddy field. Um, when the French don't decide to attack, um, the English basically upstakes and advance to about 300 yards from the French, um, replant their stakes and start firing at the French. This is enough to get the French to attack. Um, the first, first attack is primarily with dismounted men-at-arms with small groups of mounted troops attempt, attempt, attempting to attack 
the wings of the English formation. Um, this churns up the mud even further, and despite uh, pushing the English back when they uh, initially clash, um, the first attack is uh, defeated, and a second attack uh, really just ends up um, uh, colliding into the, the huge pile of corpses from the first attack. Um, the French in the battle lose 12 dukes and counts, 120 barons, 1500 knights, and possibly a further eight or 9,000 um, troops. The English lose the Duke of York, who um, uh, fell over during the fight and is suffocated by bodies falling on top of him, uh, the Earl of Suffolk and six knights. Uh, they lose about 300 other troops. Um, Agincourt uh, is a tremendous victory for the English. Strategically, you have to say it didn't make a huge difference. Um, the English take their prisoners to Calais. Um, they are actually so desperate for food that many of the troops actually have to surrender their ransoms to the burghers of Calais just to buy food. Uh, and the only one who, who really gains out of it significantly is the king himself, who has all the major prisoners and he ransoms to pay for his um, troops. Again, he's still desperately um, short on money. The most significant action over the next couple of years is actually Henry inflicting two naval defeats on the French and Joanese ships employed by the French, destroying the French naval navy as a fighting force. This is important because England still relies on the trade routes to Flanders from England, um, supplying wool and other goods. But the most significant thing probably in 1417 is uh, John of Burgundy actually decides to acknowledge Henry as King of France. Um, and probably he was hoping to do this, uh, believing that a English king would be easier to deal with and will help him uh, defeat the Armagnac faction, leaving uh, John as the most powerful baron in France. In the same year, Henry launches a further invasion of um, Normandy, captures Cain, uh, Cain, whatever it's pronounced, <laughs> that, that town in France in Normandy. Um, Caen. Caen, that's what I was trying to say, yeah. Um, that's, that's my approximation. I think we should apologise to anyone who's... Yes. Any French, particularly out the there. French, yes, and, and, and uh, anybody who can speak French while we we mangle the language of one of our closest neighbours. So, um, following on from the uh, capture of Caen uh, in 1418, the English besiege Rouen, uh, which actually uh, it surrenders due to starvation on the 19th of January 1419. 
Um, this is significant because Rouen is essentially the second city of, Paris, of France, uh, second only to Paris, really, in size and wealth. And also by this time, the English have conquered all of Normandy, except for Mont-Saint-Michel, uh, which holds out. The significant thing in Normandy is actually the French nobles are actually dispossessed and their land is given to English lords. So this is actually a proper conquest. It's not just taking rule. And it's, it's noticeable by this stage that the concept of nationhood is starting to grip both England and France. Um, the French, however, are still in a civil war and st are still more concerned with fighting each other than the English. In fact, John the Fearless is actually murdered uh, on the pretext of negotiations and the signal to attack him is actually given by the Dauphin himself, heir to the King of France. Um, so in December 1419, the new Duke, uh, Philip the Good, allies with the English, not surprisingly, and the uh, Armagnac uh, situation is um, starting to look fairly dire. And by the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, Henry becomes heir to the King of France and regent. Um, this is not recognised by the Armagnacs, but in return for this, he basically agrees to conquer the remaining Armagnac territories. And this policy is pursued. Uh, sadly, however, during the Siege of Meaux, M-E-A-U-X, uh, in 1422, Henry catches dinner dysentery and on the 31st of August 2022, 1422, sorry, 1422, he dies. Uh, he was aged only 35. He had come to the throne when he was only 25. Um, so uh, he, he is succeeded by his son, who at that time is, uh, I think, two years old, roughly. Now, um, in France, uh, Henry is succeeded by John, Duke of ben Bedford, who becomes Regent of France. And under John and the Earl of Salisbury, who's one of the English most successful generals of the age, the next seven years are actually some of the most successful for the English. Um, they um, make significant gains, and by 1428, the Dauphinist cause does seem lost. Um, despite the fact that um, Dauphinist France is still wealthier than Lancastrian France, the string of defeats um, seems to be rolling the tide only one way. Uh, and there it might have gone had it not been for a shepherdess who arrives and revives Dauphinist morale. Who can this be? <laughs> um, I, the story of Joan of Arc is sufficiently well documented that I don't propose to cover it in, in any detail. <laughs> um, suffice to say that she was not primarily responsible for any victories against the English, but as I say, 
was um, significant in actually reviving Dauphinist morale. Um, and the apparent turnaround is actually what convinces the English that she must be a witch. <laughs> and that sadly seals her fate. Um, by 1432, the English position starts to deteriorate significantly. Um, the English finances, which were never really secure, have by this time become insufficient to maintain the war. And um, the Duke of Bedford in this year is actually summoned back to Parliament uh, in England. Um, they actually beg him to remain in, in England as the king's chief counsellor. Um, and this does nothing to improve the English fortunes in France. In fact, um, the Duke of Bedford was probably one of the few English nobles who actually genuinely enjoyed the company of French nobles and living in France. Um, uh, but sadly, by this stage, the tide of the war is definitely turning. His death in 1435 um, is um, coincidentally less, um, less than a week before um, Philip of Burgundy and Charles VII signed the Treaty of Arras. Uh, and by this treaty, Philip recognises Charles as King of France in return for large swathes of territory. Um, ironically, this treaty is ultimately a disaster for Burgundy, um, but it also shatters English hopes in France as well. Um, clearly, uh, Philip was hoping that um, Charles would be um, able to be manipulated in the same way as he hoped the English could be manipulated. Um, but this was proved, proven not to be the case. From the, the years essentially 1435 to 1453 are a rearguard action by the English in France. Uh, at the end of uh, the time period, the English's only remaining territory in France was Calais. In fact, Talbot's final campaign is in Guyenne in 1452 to 1453. And this was a last effort by an exhausted England. But the defeat at Castignon on the 14th of July 1453 really ultimately was the final blow in the Hundred Years' War and uh, Bordeaux falls to the French, I think, uh, in less than a couple of months after the battle. The end of the Hundred Years' War actually sees the English government and the Lancastrian dis din dynasty fatally discredited. Um, and the long and murderous conflict known as the Wars of the Roses Break or the Cousins' War breaks out in 1455. Um, while France suffered horribly during the Hundred Years' War, it has to be said um, that England, by and large, comes out of the conflict pretty much unscathed. 
However, what started as feudal monarchies in 1328 by 1455 have become nations that um, uh, Englishmen recognise themselves as English. Uh, the English nobles who in 1328 primarily spoke uh, Norman French uh, by 1455 universally speak English. And that, gents, is a summary of the Hundred Years' War. I hope people find that interesting. Richard, thank you so much. It, it is, you know, basically over these two podcasts, you, you've covered the more than 100 years of the Hundred Years' War in probably about an hour, all told, which is quite an achievement. Um, you know, in in the the notes that'll accompany this um, podcast when we publish it, we we'll include some some book recommendations. Um, th there are there are hundreds and hundreds of books about the Hundred Years' War out there. Loads of information on the web. We'll sort of pick some interesting ones to recommend for you. Um, but I think you know it's, it's genuinely a subject you could spend a lifetime at least studying. And, and keep finding interesting stuff out or you know i've just got to yeah i'll Sorry. mention that most of my uh the main source i used actually was a brief history of the hundred years war uh by desmond seward um so we'll make sure that's included in the um, bibliography absolutely yeah this has got a, a couple of things i just you know one about Agincourt, you know, you, you highlighted the effect of the ground conditions, the mud on that. And I can say, have, having personally walked across a very soggy ploughed field in near enough full armour once, it's absolutely knackering. And that, that was back in the day when I, I, I was not, not as podgy and unfit as I am now. I was young and enthusiastic, and it's absolutely knackering. Yeah, yeah. armour when it's reasonably well fitted, it does tie you out. But you you can walk across a field, but not you know non ploughed one, you'd be fine. Soggy ploughed field was just terrible. It was well, absolutely it's, exhausting. It's very hard to convince war gamers to attack with close order troops, or certainly make war gamers with close <laughs> order troops uh, in what you'd probably regard as rough going. Um, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, well, in make terms, that's probably better than difficult going, actually, in some ways. Uh, into, um, yes, uh, power bows supported by men at arms. So uh, it's um, it's a difficult one to refight that in that sense. I think a lot of battles where you've got one side that attack what in retrospect, or from or certainly from Wargamer's point of view, is downright stupidity. <laughs> You've just, it's a lot of our games are effectively one-offs. We don't have the political and campaign imperatives, I suppose. Yeah, I'd I'd, lo I'd love if my opponents were to have that sort of approach. <laughs> I must admit, but that would, actually, well, you maybe not because it's going to make it too easy, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it it. it... Very occasionally I've had opponents who've done silly things, but uh, probably not on that scale, I have to say. It was, yeah. It's, uh, another question, well, well, uh, it's a great what-if question, I suppose. I'd just like 
your take on it. You know, um, Henry V was for a while technically the heir to the throne of France, and if he hadn't died, he might have been in a position to inherit it. So, it, do you think there's any chance that if if he if he had inherited it and been crowned, that he could have made it stick? Or no, was that I, just I, not going to happen. <laughs> I think by then it was actually too late and uh, I think it would have resulted in civil war in France. I mean history would have been differently, different undoubtedly, but probably um, it would have been it would be impossible to hold both England and France and eventually the two countries would split again. Always been my thoughts. Of course, his son Henry VI was crowned, but he was he was crowned in Paris, wasn't he? Which technically isn't where French kings were crowned, if I remember. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I believe that it, the English actually claimed the Kingdom of France right up until the middle of the eighteenth of nineteenth century. Um, You're right. Yeah, I think, I think we touched on that uh, in the last one, didn't we? The, so uh, um, the arms of it, France were included in the royal standard. Yeah for hundreds of years afterwards. So, um, yes, um, claiming it and the reality, of course, were two entirely <laughs> different things. Yeah, I've got, I've got one, one, one pedantic point I always like to make at this point, so about, about Joan of Arc, um, you know, is it, you know, is it a, and, the, and the witchcraft thing. Yeah, I, I would point out that she was burnt at the stake as a heretic. Yeah, um, because that didn't stop the English still regarding her as a witch. No, no, but if 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 the English had executed her as a witch, she'd have been hanged. Yes, indeed. <laughs> we, we, we hanged witches. We burnt heretics. <laughs> but yes, no, they they did absolutely view her as a <laughs> as a witch. You know, and my last annoying point for you, Richard. Oh, on. <laughs> Because people always ask, well, I think I'll, I'll actually give you a, a chance to explain. It's it's those those Frenchmen in Wales, because the the uh, <laughs> I, dear listener, I, I I'm laughing because Richard's reaction was actually predictable at that point. Go, oh, here we go again. Because uh, obviously the army list, the Welsh army list, doesn't have a French ally, and, and lots of people ask about this. So I'm giving you another chance to explain why you've done it many times before. Um, well, I, I still don't regard the uh, French as having actually fought. And I, my concern is that you would continually see um, Welsh armies with French um, units disproportionate to the actual conflict. That said, I might be persuaded to allow a Welsh army a single unit of French um, uh, specifically for the one year, um, um, well, we're, 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 to replace their knights with superior versions. Well, it would. It would probably be a unit of average men at arms with one rank of crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> There we are. But your point about you do, it would be the only, if you had a French ally, it would be the only version you ever saw, because that, that's all you ever saw back in the DVM days, when Indeed. I remember it. Mr. Hamilton, yeah. Hammy, Hammy, James, 
serial but, user of that army. But yeah, I might I might might allow a single unit of four men at arms supported by two crossbow. Sounds generous. <laughs> well, there were anyway, a thousand yeah. men at arms and five hundred crossbowmen. So anyway, that, proportionately in a French army, that might be might be okay. Cle clearly, of course, under a mediocre Allied general. Oh well. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and, and, and then and then shame any user of the Welsh army who's ever asked about that contingent as to why they're not using it if they if they don't field it. Okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, again, thank you, Richard. That, that's great. So you, you can now have a little bit of a break. Uh, we'll move on to uh, uh, traditional looking at uh, some army lists. And we shall start off with Mr. Matthew Haywood uh, and his offering, where we will see if he is going to continue his, his, his theme of, can we say non-standard armies? Or at least non-standard army compositions. Yeah, that's you, probably Matt. a fair way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I, I, just to say thank you to Richard for the for, for the rundown of the last part of the Hundred Years' War, which was great. I, my my immediate takeaway, I have to say, from that was um, Spain's a nice place to visit, but you don't want to stay there. Judging by the free companies all heading back into France rather than just you know ravaging Spain instead, and the English never cope well with food abroad. <laughs> yeah, there you go but anyway right yes on to, on, on to lists so um i've gone with the scottish in france because um uh, it's it's well why not it's a it, it's a list that I, I have to admit does draw my eye periodically and i probably will do it eventually um not sure if it's an open or a themed um army for best but um for those that aren't aware, it runs from about 1418 to about 1430. Um, it has a compulsory professional army commander rather than a, you know, your choice between instinct and professional. Um, but its subgenerals can be either. So that, that can, in some circumstances, be quite a generous um, and interesting um, tweak on the army. Um, the terrain type is just a standard, which I think is almost unique. I'm not sure I've seen that in any other list. I'm assuming they fought in a very specific part of France, just to have standard. Or never made it to the coast, I guess. Um, the camp can be unfortunate or flexible. Um, it's also quite unique in its composition of the list. Uh, you can have a Scottish general that can only command Scottish troops, and, a French gen and French generals that can only command French troops. But in terms of what your generals are, the choice is yours. So you could actually have all French commanding a Scottish army, that would be a bit difficult. Oh no, you'd have to have one. Well, you'd have to have one to command the, the, the compulsory Scots, but the rest could technically all be French. Um, I don't so recommend could, it. Could, so could you have a French army commander with just a Scottish sub-general? Yeah, I think so. There's nothing to stop you in the list. So you could, yes, you could have a French <laughs> army commander. So, so, so it would actually be a Franco-Scottish list, I, I'm guessing, yes. rather than... Yeah. Rather than Yes, yeah, so, I mean, te technically, the Scottish commanders were French commanders because they were actually uh, most of them nobles in France as well. Right. Oh, or OK. In, or so, employed so, by French. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <that's enough>. um, <laughs> yeah. So without further ado, um, what did I go with? 
to that. Right, so I went with a legendary professional because if you can't spend 1,600 points on one thing, it's just not worth doing. So there you go, 1,600 <laughs> points on a legendary professional general. <laughs> I know there will be discussion on that, I'm sure. But um, then I went with um, three mediocre professional generals. Come on, I have just spent 1,600 points on the commanders. So, you know, I'm not looking to spend too much more on the commanders. So, your, your, so, your, your army commander is actually paranoid and doesn't want anybody anybody who might challenge his genius. Exactly. Yes, he, he wants to be the one to take all the glory and have sufficient commanders that he can blame because you know, they just don't know what they're doing. But, uh, there we go. Um, yes, yeah, so three mediocre professional sub-generals. Uh, I, I divvied them up. 2-2, two, two. so the Scots Army Commander, Scots Sub-General, and two French Sub-Generals. I have to admit, I didn't put much thought into the general, the General's uh, allegiances, so to speak. Uh, might touch on that in a minute. Um, so there you go. So that gives me um, an immediate PBS of nine, which I, I think is quite tasty for that uh, this style of army. Um, in the end, the scouting is going to come out as three, which again I think is quite generous for what is basically a foot army. I, I think um, for these sort of armies, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think so too. Um, but anyway, um, the camp is flexible simply because I know what my dice are like with legendary generals. I will never attack; I will always defend. So I might as well have the bonus of the camp. So, you so you'll only take a fortified model with you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, maybe I'll have one side caved in so I can pretend it's not fortified. But uh, anyway, so yeah, flexible camp. Um, you then got the compulsory Scottish men at arms who are uh, infantry, drilled close, average, fully armoured, two handed cut and crush melee expert. Six of those. Simply because they're horribly expensive. Um, then you have men at arms with lesser armour who are. Same as the Scottish men at arms, but protected. And that's a, a tug of eight, which I think is perfectly valid and reasonable. Eight makes them quite survivable. Two handed cut and crush and melee expert just depresses any fully armored men that are out there, quite frankly. <laughs> you, you think, well, you, you're almost two thirds the cost of me and you're beating that snot out of me. That's not fair. Uh, sorry. Right. Um, and then we have the two blocks of. Um, Compulsory archers, because you have to have a minimum of 12 Scottish power bow, which are archers, infantry, formed loose, average, protected, experienced power bow. So two tugs of eight. Um, you've then got, which is essentially a Scottish filler, the, the, the ribolds, I think is how it's pronounced, uh, which are infantry, tribal loose, average, unprotected, unskilled javelin, short spear, combat shy. Six of those. Absolutely useless, but it does mean I have an extra tug. Um, and then we get into the French contingent, which is two tugs of four of the Valet de Guerre, which are cavalry, formed loose, average protected, charging lancer, melee expert. Um, and then I always feel that these should be in the French army or contingent in the French army, the Genoese crossbowmen, which are infantry, drilled loose, average protected, experienced crossbow, shield cover, and shoot. So they are able to shoot and still retain shield cover, which I think is a very tasty little um, bonus point for them. And you have to, have, and I've taken eight, so it's a tug of eight. And then oh. to ride through the Genoese crossbowmen, I've brought the French knights. 
Again, it's <laughs> traditional, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Back to Cressy. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. So, so French knights who are cavalry, formed loose, superior, fully armoured, charging lancer, dev charger, dismountable, melee expert. So basically the full whack. Six of those at a mere 1,536. So actually cheaper than my legendary general and probably more useful. <laughs> oh, and, you took my punchline. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I can only have six of the French knights anyway, so you know I have to spend the 1,600 points somewhere else. Um, and finally, there's a uh, inverted commas skirmisher gun section, um, which is uh, guns, light artillery, skirmisher, average, unprotected, experienced guns combat shy two off uh simply because that gives me 10 uggs which makes deployment quite simple when <laughs> well, well, well with the scouting cards i don't think i'm ever going to out scout anybody 100 percent, and it's most like and as um the proportions are usually 10 20 uh, 10 20 30 or 40s 10 is the ideal number for deploying initially guns have to go down first and a couple of other units so there's there's none of this rounding up so i'm actually losing i'm having to put more uggs on the table than i need to at the beginning so you're just justifying a, a, a nice coincidence there yeah probably <laughs> yeah it wasn't on my mind when i had put the list together to be perfectly <laughs> honest yes um and also what's quite unique about not not unique but rare is this army has absolutely no foot skirmishers for the period i mean most of them have a single unit or something like that but this one has none you can't actually take any oh, your right. entire scout your entire scouting comes from the quality of your army commander and the basically uh what is it 14 mounted troops which is the maximum the army can have which i've taken uh which pushes so you, it up so you have its maximum scouting which is three yes uh, and only because i have a legendary general if you drop it down yes. to a talented it goes to two there you go. Yeah. So there you go. Um, how would I use it? I would probably look to attack if I could get enough terrain on the table, depending on who I'm fighting. A strategic attack obviously would be quite nice. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I'd probably defend with it equally. I'm not too wedded whether I go first or second. Um, I will comment in that I have taken all of the missile troops as eights because, unlike the English, they don't have many experts in their power bows. And I find big blocks of eight much more comfortable to use with basically troops that have no defensible quality other than dying slowly if in combat. So uh, the two blocks of um, Valet de Guerre are there to wander around the back and hope for an opportunity or to try and intercept out to stop people plugging themselves into the archers. Um, you've got two blocks of quite quality men at arms for um, if you can get them in the right place combined with the archers um i know richard's very good at doing it with his uh, with his um french gendarme list which uh, i don't think i'll ever be able to match but that's the kind of principle you go for uh and obviously you've got six french knights that sit at the back and look for a suitable target um there's almost an argument to make the army command the french and give him the knights although to be fair being that it's not an allied contingent he can still move the french knights and give them that very valuable plus two on the initial impact because they're the only army that gives devastate only army that has a shatter to it the only part of the army that has a shatter to it besides for the valet de guerre and um you know you might want to put a really big hole in fact there's almost an argument for putting three generals in that french knight unit and just 
pounding that at something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you won't get a single shatter or skull, obviously, but no. you, know, you, you, you guarantee three wounds. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That that's my latest. It's almost sensible for me. I think I, I actually wouldn't be too disappointed with that. Trying that out at some point. Oh, I, I just think it's too small. Um, I, my initial thought was it's going to be narrow. Because it, you've got two valet de guerre in fours that you really can't commit in a straight up fight. They're just too too vulnerable. You've got the ribodes, so you're down to three fighting units and with three supporting missile units. Um, I'm not sure what the artillery do. Um, Spend the 120 points that I couldn't find to spend yeah. anything else on. Frankly. Yeah. Would, would, do you float with the legendary or do you... Because uh, no, if I, you float with him, then the Scots are all under the single command of the mediocre. Um, if he commands troops, you're okay. You can dish out a card to the French sub generals. I presume one French sub general commands the knights. I think there'd be Always, yeah. an, I, I don't think know how an, it works. I think there'd be an argument to have the legendary as a Frenchman yeah. and have three I, Scots subbies. I I I I'd, I'd still possibly go to I, I I don't disagree when I when, uh, when I said at the beginning that I hadn't really thought about the command mm. structure of the generals. This is kind of what I meant. The more I look at it, I think the more the right have the French legendary, it gets the your reaction forces into the right places a lot quicker with the cards that you can you, you can yeah. share I, I, or, or, and possibly floating i mean because then you can uh, i do like floating army commanders in professional senses because it's, it's one that i use in my ottomans where you can you can literally just swap your focus from one flank to the other it's, just by literally picking up all your cards and throwing it to one side it's not a terribly dancey army and you can always give a card to each of his subbies. Yeah. My my only concern with that and the mediocre generals is to get the most out of the power bow and the genies, I'm going to want to start stepping them back. I'm yes. going to be wanting to go backwards. Of course, being formed for the archers makes it quite an expensive card drop. So if you don't get the right cards under the mediocre general, you're screwed. Mm. Uh, so that's difficult. The Genoese, not so bad because they're drilled. Yeah. So you, they, they can handle a lot better bad card situations and and we all know that if 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 you assume that you're all right for cards it's just going to go horribly wrong in the following turn so yeah um, also the genuine is being crossbowmen get the wound on s if they are if they couldn't fall back and are charged yeah the, yeah they're, they're much more um whereas the, the powerboat don't get that they just got the longer range yeah which um so yeah no, I, I broadly agree with, with, with Richard. It, it just feels a bit small. It, it, it's narrowness, you know, as you say. It, it's six units. That, yeah, because there's Valet de Guerre. Yeah, or insert where you can. They, they're, they're not initially frontline troops. Yeah, it's... Um... I, I don't disagree. I think, it, uh, again, it, it, 
it's one I think it needs terrain of some description to play around with. Yeah, it, it's one that a billiard table would really give it a bad day. Oh yeah. But, um, Oh yeah it's, yeah, it's not top of my um. Yeah, it's not, I'm not taking it to skulls. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you know, the, the, as the you know, we had similar sort of comments in, in the last podcast of Hundred Years War, wasn't it? They are. I think these armies are coming out. They are very much for the war they fought in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so that one, yeah. It's it, it's interesting. I mean, you, you know, it has to be said, leg, the legendary general leading those French knights could do something absolutely horrible to somebody. Um, it's, you know, and they and they and they they are all superior, fully armoured chaps. There's no none of this second rank sergeants or anything. No, there's no filler. I mean, you, there's, you there's no have to kill yeah. three and a half of the good ones. Yeah, yeah. Hence why they cost nearly as much as your legendary general. <laughs> yes. So. Okay, should we should we move on to my offering, which I'm not going to claim is any better. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone for free company, uh, which you know, Richard, you know, they they, they featured mightily in Richard's um, uh, history section as, as being a right pain in the backside to everybody they came across quite frankly <laughs> just just a, bu- well, a bunch of lit- literally they often tortured uh, their <laughs> prisoners um <laughs> to reveal where their treasure or goods or whatever was um they get even nicer so the pain in the backside <laughs> is quite literal <laughs> <laughs> a lo- a lovely bunch then <laughs> a delight a deli- a, an absolute delight <laughs> Okay, so yeah, the, the the army list is basically um, a mixture of troops from across the the the, the Hundred Years' War. You've got um, dismounted men at arms. You've got some of which can be downgraded to have lesser armor, as um, Matt's army had. It's got English longbowmen. It's got crossbowmen, and it can have French knights. Um, I, I've actually gone for one that's entirely dismounted and i think there's a choice you have to make in this list um the the generals are all professional um as, as because yeah these guys were just professionally nasty uh, they were they were quite well organized i believe um yeah. you know richard's again richard's history does suggest that so we've got, we've got generals um i've gone for a talented professional cnc a competent and two mediocre sub generals um i oddly i did vaguely consider the legendary option but i thought actually there's not a lot in this list that it can benefit um and the re- one reason for that is i've not gone for the knights <laughs> so th- there's nothing there with that shatter which the plus two can really really help you with uh, although you know although plus two in an ongoing melee is never to be sniffed at um there's something really spectacular about your legendary general leading charging lancers devastating charges superior into something um i've i've got poor unfortified camp um no, no nothing spent there i think the free company can only have an unfortified camp anyway the the army i've gone for are two units of men-at-arms who are drilled close average fully armored two-handed cut and crush melee expert two eights of those big chunky units 
a unit of veteran men-at-arms, and these don't appear in many lists, infantry drilled clothes superior fully armoured, two-handed cut and crush. They don't get the melee expert, but they get the superior. So same, same fighting capability in ongoing melees, but one better in um, the charge. I've got a little unit, a six base unit of men-at-arms with less armour, drilled clothes, average protected, two-handed crush, cut and crush, melee expert. I think I'd ideally I'd have liked that as an eight, but didn't, I didn't work the points out. Two units of English longbowmen, formed loose, average protected, experienced power bows in sixes. Three units of crossbowmen, formed loose, protected, experienced crossbow, again in sixes. Um, although I do take Matt's point about eights of them, but you know, again, it's a bit of a matter of what you can fit in. I've I... gone for the... Sorry? Sorry, I was going to comment. I think the sixes actually work because they you can slot them between the men at arms. Yes. Um, and that's actually a quite an effective tactic and one that really isn't open to the Scottish in France. So while I think Matt's right for his argument for eight, I think in this army, the sixes actually really work well. Oh, excellent. Obviously, I was a genius just picking that for that reason. It's, it, it's, it's an ongoing, and also got three units of them. Anyway, Matt, Matt mentioned about the single unit of skirmishers some of these armies can have. I've got one, a unit of Gascons, infantry skirmisher, average unprotected, experienced javelin, combat shy, a nine base unit. Hey! <laughs> and like Matt, I've gone for a unit of guns as well, average unprotected, experienced guns, combat shy. Um... I'll be honest, I think I went for that because it's still off that. Oh, they're so much cheaper than they were in previous years. Because <laughs> um, I can see the advantage of one unit of those just for pinging things at longer range. And if you're in a wider environment that might have war wagons, it can cause people to stop and think. Um, the reason, as I said, I said the army can have knights, but I decided to go with the infantry. I, I just did. In, in some ways, you're almost swapping a unit of those men at arms for a unit of knights, and you still got to find some points. Because I think if you were putting a unit of knights into this army, like Matt's, you'd want to go for that full fat superior, everything including the kitchen sink, and just over 1500 points. I couldn't, I wasn't happy with what it looked like. Anyway, this army comes out with a PBS of eight. And a scouting of two. So, you know, the, that, the difference of that with Matt's is I've got talented, he's got a legendary. I did go with talented to just in, slightly increase my chance of being able to dictate the terrain uh, and evade defense, but um, obviously the legendary would be likely to trump me on that. Um, as Richard has just alluded to, this army will work on the interaction between the men at arms and the and the shooters. We've got the two eights of men at arms of the big, big stonking force that takes quite a bit to get through. And you'd hope to, I think you'd hope to use the veteran men at arms, the superior ones, as a bit of a punch just from that one extra factor um, in combat. Maybe sit them between the two, the two eights. So hopefully they can knock a hole and then turn on flanks. The men at arms with lesser armor bit of a holding unit or, or a unit to act in support of the shooters. So anyway, that's it. It's, I think it's very straightforward in many ways. It's got to get those men at arms, those turn it, cut and crush guys in there, chopping people up. Um, 
Well, I think like Matt, it probably needs some terrain because of all those loose formation shooters. But if you do have a lot, it's, you know, but again, back to Richard's point of operating with the shooters and the men at arms, they can they can mutually support each other. And so the, the fact that shooters are loose can be mitigated. Anyway, there you are. I'm not sure you can get much more out of this list than that. The other it's sort of the other option is to go with something with quite a lot of mounted and not so many dismounted men at arms. I think you've got sort of two choices with this army. It's very straightforward. Probably easy to paint up as well. Lots of men at arms. Silver, give them a wash. <laughs> go, go, go. There you yeah, are. It's it's not a complicated army. I think it's quite uh quite effective in period um the men at arms are always a little bit vulnerable to being charged by knights but when you've got the longbow around that helps um the crossbowman supported by the men at arms is a really tough combination um because the crossbow are not easy victims because of the standing to receive and um, if you place them well between the men-at-arms they can take plenty of shots before they ever have to fight so uh, yeah it's a it's a good solid hundred years war army basically in my view they are that I can't say anything different. I mean, I, I don't think a mounted version of it works particularly well because I think you've still got to have 12 dismounted. You do, arms yes. And, and eight longbowmen, or was it 12? I can't remember. Um, the, so I think yeah. you, you suck a lot of points out already before you start putting in the really expensive knights. So I think the all-foot versions, and yeah. The, the, the combination of power bow and crossbowmen is um, quite a nice um, set to have. Particularly if in a themed where most people are only on twos or threes for their scouting. So yeah. again, you can you almost pick and choose your targets. Yeah, no, really good list. Um, yeah. I'm not sure it's the most exciting list in the world to use, but um, um, no, no, it probably isn't. Um, <laughs> but I think it could be effective. I mean, it's, it, it could be one to r run out every now and then. Yeah. Um, I'll, I, yeah. It's quite a nuisance in an open competition because there are a whole variety of armies that don't really want to end up fighting it. Um, yeah, well, no, if I look, look from my sort, my sort of favoured horse archer type armies, this one, you know, most of the foot's fully armoured. <laughs> it's got yeah. two power bow units that will outrage me massively and get a, an upgrade. The crossbowmen outrage you. <laughs> It's got nothing unprotected other than the skirmishes to pick on. Yeah, and if you've got charging lancers, you you hope you do well at impact because once you've you're in a melee combat, you are getting pounded. Yeah, yeah. If you if you don't have that, the the better arms could more or less just walk out into the middle of the field and go, go on, charge me in the flank then. <laughs> then I'll turn, expand out, and absolutely butcher you with a two-handed cut and crush, fully armoured melee expert. Oh look, I've got four claims. God, that's frightening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it could be. It could be a real, really nasty thing to face at times. So, 
<laughs> okay, well, that, that one went down quite well. <laughs> it's it's also a really quick army to 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 knock up in terms of writing a list. And as I said, I suspect it'd be quite easy to paint up as well. So, which leads us on to Richard, who's probably got the most diverse, I'm going to guess, army. Right. Uh, <laughs> diversity, that's a good thing, isn't it, these days? Yeah, do you, yeah, um, yeah we're, we're, all, we're all for it. So, uh, yeah, it's just, okay. no, just, just thinking in terms of, in terms of troop types, because certainly mine is fairly straightforward. Yeah, <laughs> so... I've um, gone for a medieval Navarrese army. Mm -hmm. Kingdom of Navarre is that little bit of Spain uh, next to the Basque country um, between there and Catalonia. South, so this is, this is south Charles, of the French border. Charles the Bad, was it? Charles the Bad, yes. Oh, you've got to love they? a ruler called Charles the Bad. Yeah, I mean, you've got um, it's, it's hard to resist an army. With by, by the standards of the time, he was a treacherous so and so <laughs> which, which is saying something um he, he was particularly good at, at um agreeing to rather bad deals and then uh, reneging on them making the situation worse <laughs> anyway um so uh what do i have i have a talented instinctive army commander a talented professional free company ally i'll come back to the ally in in a bit uh, and to mediocre instinctive subgenerals. Um, so why have I gone that way? Well, the um, Navarrese component consists of uh, a unit of Norman knights. These are superior, uh, fully armoured front rank. The sergeants are protected in the rear rank. A charging lancer. Uh, devastating charger melee expert. The sergeants are just dead charger melee expert. Um, formed loose. So good punch. Um, hopefully, do some damage with those. They're supported by Navarrese knights who are formed loose, average, protected, charging lancer, melee expert, with the sergeants again not having the charging lancer. Um, so they're actually quite punchy for a uh, for the price. They're actually quite punchy in terms of points. Um, the other Navarrese troops are two units of spearmen, uh, infantry form, close average protected short spear and shield wall, um, and a unit of javelinmen who are form loose, average protected, unskilled javelin, short spear, shoot and charge. Um, Along with that, I have two uh, units of slingers, one average, one poor, experienced sling combat shy, and a unit of poor, unprotected, experienced javelin, bidets, also combat shy. Um, so that's the Navarrese component. Um, the free company component then consists of a unit of veteran knights, uh, superior, fully armoured, charging lance, dev charger, man expert, dismountable, six of those. Uh, a unit of men at arms, drill close average, fully armoured, two handed cut and crush, man expert, six. A unit of longbowmen, uh, six again, average protected experience, power bow. And a unit of crossbowmen, average protected experience, crossbow, also a six. Um, and that is the army. So four units in the free company ally, 
um, supported by the Navarese under talented army commander and two mediocre subs. So you can throw the mediocre subs into leading the knights to get your push through and the talented can dish the cards out um, where they're needed. Um, um, yeah, standard coastal and mountains. I gave it a poor unfortified camp. It only has six PBS and two scouting, so uh, notably less than the armies, both your guys. Um, but um, uh, something a bit different. How it would do in the theme competition? It would be quite an interesting contest. I have no idea, really. Um, uh, I th think the OK against the other armies, it's probably potentially being outshot a bit. Um, but it's got some uh, solid spearmen um, and it's got a punch with the the knights, particularly the Free Company and the Norman Knights. Um, I'd give it a go, really. Yeah, I, I, I quite like the look of that one. It's, it's, I think it's more flexible than certainly my Free Company. Yeah, um, um, against, um, against the Free Company, I'd want to try and uh, shield off my knights from your power bow mm. and see if I can charge the men at arms. So, um, hopefully, do the damage at the impact and then break off and charge again mm. if I can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where the another reason for having the eights in those in that mine for the, the average units is to be able to absorb that if it happens. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you've got more tools, you know, even those, those spearmen. Blocks of eight, you know, they, they occupy ground, they can blunt an attack. You know, the shield wall means that shatters aren't going to happen to them if they're charged by knights. They'll it goes into the loose slowly. Uh, yeah, unless your opponent rolls the skulls, uh, well, it, it's it's all the... to me, um, <laughs> and uh, it, 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 wipes yeah. them out in a turn and a half. But there yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, even the the slingers and stuff can absorb a round of shooting. Yeah. Um, if you get lucky, they might even do a bit of damage back at the enemy crossbow or longbowmen. Yeah. But, well, um, um, yeah. As as you know, all three of us here are fans of skirmishers. Um, you know, a couple of files sniping. You just get lucky, cut the wounds on something. You know, you could take a could take a very expensive base off with that, or take a front rank off. You know, like like your knights here, take the, the lancer base off to leave one file significantly weaker, things like that. All adds up to the, those little differences. Sorry, Matt, yes. No, no, I, I was just going to say, on the, on the alternative, if you're not using them for shooting, that they're, they're, they're an extremely useful shield in front of your mounted to get them mm -hmm. closer to a power bow unit. Because if the shooting gets them devastated, your cavalry just walks straight through them. And yes. goes up, up close and if they're not devastated you move them forward again and you use um, a, a white card to pull them out of the way before you charge at the beginning of the next turn so if you're not shooting with them they're also there because 
look, looking at it, the, the list for me is very flexible in terms of deployment as well. Not If you get your deployment slightly wrong, you can still redeploy. Whereas something like the Scottish list, you get it wrong, you've got a big problem. Um, so yeah, I like it. it. It's got that flexibility. It's got the mounting. The, it's one of those lists that's just got enough mounted that if it gets in the right place, you are in a world of hurt because they are so hard to stop. Yeah. They, know, so, you know, as, as Richard said, you know, if you could get, if put the Norman Knights and the Free Company Veteran Knights in together, hmm. that, that's a lot of superior charging Lancer Dev Charger. Any shatter could just then roll down the line yeah. with the old plus two uh, on that. And that that could put somebody in a world of pain, you know. And, and knights are manoeuvrable enough to get into a position. And as you say, you know, maybe screen them, or you know, or you're just holding something up with the spearman while the knights get to the right position. You know, okay, you might say, oh, I'll lose a spearman unit, and then your two really powerful knight units crash through two or three opposing units, and you know, you're you're, you're three one up sort of thing. I have to say, I'm, I'm genuinely not too scared about charging superior knights into powerbow. Or um, if it's a block of twenty-four powerbow, you know. Something, it, but if it's if it's in the, if it's in the open, the odds are in the knight's favour. Yeah, very much so. If you, and much particularly so. if you can screen it in the advance, so you're not getting sniped before you before yeah. they the only shot they get at the knights is when you charge. Yeah. And, and and as Richard's already given them enough generals that they can actually push through. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it will make your opponent think, which I think is one of the bigger advantages of whatever design of army you come up with. If you can make your opponent think, you're immediately starting to win. Because yeah. they're, 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 they're losing track of what they're trying to do, trying to work out what you're trying to do. Yeah, so, yeah. Bit, sorry, but is it philosophical or no, no, I'm not uh, sure which, which one? It's, 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 it's wise words, isn't it? If, if you, you, you force your opponent, to dance to your tune, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. Yes, don't don't interrupt an enemy whilst he's making a mistake. Well, there, there is that. If he's if, he, if he's cocking it up, just let him get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But if, no, no, if, I like that list. If, if, if by what you've got or you're doing, you force him to make a mistake, even better. So yeah, no, yeah, I think probably fundamentally, all three of us tend towards slightly more toolbox army lists yeah. that can do a few things you know what one of my reservations about that free company i did it's doesn't have that many tools although you know as they always say the hedgehog has one trick <laughs> and it's a very good one <laughs> so, so yeah no i think yeah yeah and i think some of the spanish armies can be quite popular in use as well i think just because they've often got a little bit something different that other medieval armies don't, be it light troops, either on foot or ma mounted, or something like El Mugavars or something. Yeah. yeah, Crown of Aragon, which is increasing in popularity, I've noticed over the last year. Again, so. do we blame Hammy for that one? Oh, probably. He's a good person to blame for most things. Yeah, because he... he it, it, he he took it to one list, and then then Lee took it to the Ultramar and Reconquista, and won yeah. won that four straight victories. I think it might have been an, the same army might have just copied Hammy's or tweaked it slightly. 
so yeah, I think uh, the crown of arrogance, I think, is a good list. Okay, I suppose, I suppose we ought to uh, just finish on the list with the traditional question: which one would we prefer to use if we oh, had to choose? Richards, definitely. Yeah, if I was taking one to a competition, I'd definitely take Richards. Um, I, I would take mine purely because I'd have a commander called Charles the Bad. Well, <laughs> not going to get any argument here. Um, but, but certainly I'd, I'd be very happy to use the free company I did for the, the old game here and there or, or a one day comp or something. But I think over a, when you get into four rounds or something, you want, I'd probably get a bit bored of it. I'd, I'd, I'd take the Scots to a themed Hundred Years War-ish late medieval competition, I think, just for something different but um. yes i think if, if there was such a competition i think you'd have to be careful what you allowed so you start letting some of the eastern europeans in i think you'd just see those swamp it again possibly just on the they're more interesting <laughs> in yep. variety yeah I think, they, lot, they... you know, I think a lot well, of us like a bit of variety don't we yeah. well particularly as the hussites fit firmly into the time frame <laughs> Hence why we've got the artillery in, Matt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking just in case. Yeah. Okay, dokie. I, th I think we've. I think that that's 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 moved on. We've done the army list. So the, the so we've done the history bit. So I suppose it's the 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 other things in Meg World. Uh, we we always seem to move on to about this point, you know. And uh, obviously, it's about two months since we. Uh, did one of these, so a number of things have happened, not least BritCon happened, which um, we all went to. I had great fun. I thought it was a real success. And I think it's the biggest Brit Meg BritCon. I think it was one of the biggest Meg competitions full stop, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was, yeah. 35, was it? We, we had 35, yeah. I mean, there was a slight unfortunate thing with that for four, four of the guys uh, playing had originally wanted to play reg, but that that fell through, and they moved across to play Meg. But yeah, I think we're, we're at thirty-five, um, and people will obviously at this point go odd number. What? How did you cope with that? Well, I think we were very lucky, and, and uh, thank you to everybody who did. We had volunteers every round for somebody who would just sit out that round and forego one of their games. So, so thank you to everybody who did that. Do, who, who did step up? I might as well name and shame them, surely. Um, Jamie Mayers did. I, I, I did. Pete Cross did. Jamie Mayers did. Oh, did, 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 oh, good grief. And I, re I apologise, I cannot remember the other two off the top of my head. Should have looked it up. Yeah, no, it's my fault. I shouldn't have put you on the spot for that one. No, 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 no. I think, you know, I, I, what I'll try and remember to do is put, put thank you into the um, show notes for that, because it's, uh, you know, it's very, you know, people signed up to play five games over the three days of BritCon. And for anybody who vol voluntarily says, it's OK, I'll just play four games. It's a big thank you. Um, you know, I, I did the Friday, you know, because I was organising. I think it's it's <laughs> sort of. Sort of it allowed me to drink some more beer than I would have done. But actually, I probably just drunk the same amount of beer anyway. But <laughs> it did allow you to wait a service to my table, though, after <laughs> bringing me drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think, uh, I think the impression everybody enjoyed themselves. 
at BritCon. I think it was a good yeah, weekend. I thought it was a great weekend. Yeah. yeah. And and you know the I think the yeah as I think we said last year the venue BHS have got down at Nottingham Trent Uni is a good one. And it's yeah. it's very very convenient to get to. So if you haven't been to BritCon before, I'd suggest have, have a think about it. Come to one of the bigger competitions. Uh, five games over three days. You could play anybody. You could win it. Who knows? It's, it's, in, in terms of army lists, it was certainly one of the most varied fields that I've list checked. There were no theme within the open. It's often you see a a, 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 a pattern, but not this time. The lists were all over the shop from what we had. We had a Spartan list up until I think Richard's gendarme uh, list was probably the latest in date. I had later yeah. French ordnance. So later French ordnance. Sorry, yeah. fourteen eighty something. Yeah. yeah. So yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you so. had the, one of the later. And um, Hunter yeah, no, with his Hunter with his Bedouins. I had my uh, two Ottoman armies there, which you don't often see. Yeah. Although me and Graham are a bit special when it comes to our Ottoman armies. <laughs> <So it's, laughs> yeah. That's Mr. Clacker, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, no. You're right. It was a good range. Um, yeah. Uh, across across the period, from you know from so the, the I think that Spartan you mentioned was probably the earliest army, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, for, for those interested, the army lists are up on the blog website. So um, there's links all over the place. You know, so um, when you go for, to the blog to look at the show notes for this show, um, scroll down a bit and you should find all the BrickCon lists there as well, all 35 of them. So <laughs> you may find inspiration. You might find you scratching your head and going, what? <laughs> But that's why they're there for all of us to 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 puzzle. So, yeah. So uh, I'm sure we'll be back there next year. So um, we've got chariots of fire this weekend. I think Richard and I are going to that one. At Boards and swords. It's boards and swords at Derby. Yes. Yep. Uh, Again, I say this weekend. That's this weekend coming from when we are recording this. It's the 16th and 17th of October. So. Probably September. when you're listening to this, folks, it's been and gone. <laughs> Indeed. And then last weekend, from this time point, uh, was <laughs> the Wargame Show at Colours, which is held at Newbury Racecourse. And we held a Meg Pacto event. So this is not a tournament as such. It was um, just a group of us getting together, putting some tables on and also providing the opportunity to demo the rules and teach the mechanisms to anybody who was interested. And we set up four tables with four very different um, Pacto games. One was in six millimeter troops. Um, one was with 15 millimeter troops. One was with 28 millimeter troops and one was double sized so that each unit was um, twice the normal width of, in 28 mil. So that was 120 millimeter 
frontage uh, played on a six foot by five foot table and with the troops basically saga type troops so on single bases placed on sabots or and it looked really good indeed um and we got plenty of interest i think i ended up doing about five demos of the mechanisms of meg pacto throughout the day i was certainly plenty tired by the end of it um and uh, despite the fact it was extremely hot it was uh, um a good time was had yeah well i i went along out with it today yeah. and i thought i th I thought it was very successful. We had a, as well, and as well as the people interested in the games that were being played, there were people that, that just wanted to know what it was about. And I think the fact we had those four different size armies was really, really good. You know, because it's uh, it just shows the variety. And and the one with the saga bases, you know, you can do it. It's basically saying as long as you've got the same basing convention, it doesn't matter. And that was a very practical demonstration of it. Um, I have to say, I think as a way of exposing the game to people who don't know much about it or may never have heard about it at all, I thought I thought it was extremely good. You know, yeah, I it, just it, I just had a good time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it was, it was a great time to chat to people, and <laughs> but it was very hot at Newbury Ready. <laughs> Yes, our, our, our next similar activity is going to be at Warfare, uh, mm -hmm. where we will hold a, um, a Battle of Hydaspes in 28mm uh, alongside the normal Meg tournament. For those people who are not into the competition side but would like a game. And my plan there is to do. Um, potentially do Pacto one day, but with big, big, big armies and possibly Magna on the second day. Um, just to give uh, the rules out, a chance out of different scales. Yeah, that sounds really good. So. And big elephants, 28 millimetre elephants. You've got to like 28 millimetre elephants. <laughs> Can't go wrong with a 28 millimetre elephant. Um, that's the beginning of November, isn't it? Is early November? Uh, it's uh, second, mid-November, mid second weekend, is it? Yeah, uh, it's it's usually about it's usually about the weekend closest to Armistice Day, isn't it, traditionally? Yeah. Or, or the weekend no, after no. Armistice Day, if it, if it if doesn't I fall. Bring up the calendar, I should be able to oh. tell you. Oh, yes, yeah, I've just brought it up now. 11th and 12th, yes, second That's weekend it. in November. Yeah, so, yeah, and of course, Warfare has a, a quite an extensive um, sh um, retail show as well. It's not just the War Games competitions. Um, it's usually got a very good variety of um, retailers selling lots of things you might want. And indeed, things you never knew you wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Often what I want, not necessarily what I need. But, yes, yeah. or as I sometimes find, things I buy at the time come away and the day after go, why did I buy that? <laughs> I've got carried away with the whole experience. But yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always a good show. Um, at uh, the Barnborough. Oh, Air, aerospace. Basically, Farnborough Airfield. Yeah, um, <laughs> it is, yes. But 
what, what, one, one hint if you're going, if, you look, if you're driving there and you look for your sat-nav, add, add about 10 minutes to the journey because what, once you get to the location, if it's anything like Alaska, you had to drive quite a way to the parking space, although the parking space was right next to the exhibition hall. Yeah, so you've been all the way around the back of the buildings, haven't you? Yeah. The gate, <laughs> yes, the, the gate by which you enter the uh, airfield is half a mile from the actual exhibition um, hall. So it is a little bit of a drive. Yeah, but there's loads, loads of parking. Parking's free. <laughs> Yeah, and all that. So, it's a great yeah, venue. Yeah, hopefully they'll put us in the same spot as last year because that was quite a nice um, area they had us in. I seem to remember. Basically, <sighs> in the middle, near to the uh, shopping. <laughs> yes, it, it was quite <laughs> close to the shopping, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah, it was sort of on the edge of one part of the shopping, and the other part was very, very close. Well, we shall, we shall see, we shall see. So, I would encourage people if you're interested in that, get the entries in. Um, mm always helps the organisers. The earlier they know the numbers, the better for sorting out their tables and such. Although I don't believe there's any actual, upper, realistically, any upper limits on numbers because um, they, they didn't use all the space that is available at the venue last year. So it can expand, but... Uh, yeah, except they have to confirm the amount of space they want certain time in advance. So... Oh, right. Um, they do have to draw a line at a certain point in time. Yeah. Yes. Again, sooner the better, folks. <laughs> so you guarantee your space, yes. Well, that's November. I mean, there's, there's a couple of competitions in October as well. The first one of which is Skull Rollers. Mm. Um, now, that is currently slated to be the largest, isn't it? Make it is. This is looking like it is going to be just the biggest make competition run to date. Um, that's at Battlefield Hobbies in Daventry. Um, and Battlefield Hobbies have been uh, the the initial ticket allocation sold out pretty quickly. And um, Hammy and the crew at Battlefield Hobbies have been did, did some work to to see if they could accommodate some more. And there are put some extra tickets on sale because they, they, they worked out they could fit more people in by utilising bits of space that they don't normally use. Um, they've not gone for double-decker tables or anything like that. <laughs> Quite exciting. Uh, um, so there are still a few tickets on sale for that, I believe, but we're, you know, we, we could have well over 40 people for that, I believe. It, it does bring a different meaning to top table. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for that. Them. That Hayward. <laughs> Don't Sorry. give up the day job. Indeed. I think there are still a few a few um, tickets available for that one. So if you're interested in that, it's an open competition. Any army from any of the published PDFs allowed. Um it, I suspect it's going to be a hopefully like BrickCon, it'll be a really, really good variety of armies. You know, so with that and later on in October there is Deventio um, at Boards and Swords, um, run by the ever wonderful Mr. Will Denham, um, and that is a classical competition. He says, "Is yes." <laughs> I hesitated. Then I know. I, I'm sure I know full well it's a classical. Yes, Deventio is the classical one. He runs Toil as the 
time of insufficient light because we don't use the term dark ages anymore or early medieval if you prefer so so yeah and um i believe, i understand there are still tickets for that one as well so if you want a, a classical run out in derby um at manny's venue board and swords get get buying your tickets folks check out those classical armies again so i think that's pro pro probably probably it for competitions in the foreseeable future i will mention also the week before um Deventio is the Society of Ancients conference uh, which is held at Maddingley Hall in Cambridge um, and is a really excellent event um, you don't have to be a Society of Ancients member to come along um, although if not why not um, <laughs> but uh, it, the basic theme it runs Friday uh, evening through to Sunday. Uh, we have uh, ball games generally on the Friday night after dinner. We have uh, on each of the days on Saturday and Sunday uh, a sort of one hour presentation by a really genuinely good speaker, followed by three to three to four hours of gaming. And we do that morning and afternoon on both Saturday and on Sunday. Um, you can come for just a day or you can stay um, residential the entire weekend and lunch and dinner are included if you stay. Lunch is included if you just come for a day. There we go. And as I, th I think I commented to you earlier this year, Richard, I, I hadn't been aware that the you could just do the day. Because the, the yeah. that week, yeah, certainly for me this year, that weekend, wouldn't be good for a whole weekend but if if i'd have known earlier if i probably meant if i'd actually read the information that the society of ancients put out quite regularly <laughs> it's not a secret uh, yeah. after all I, I i might i might have done that it's certainly on my, on my list to, to not this year i'm afraid but in future years will definitely be on my my list of something to do all details are on the society of ancients website www.soa.org.uk there we go. Bit of a random question, as as I because I keep meaning to ask you whenever I see you, Richard, but I keep forgetting. Is the Society of Ancients magazine hard printed, or can you opt for an electronic copy? Uh, it is um, currently. It is still a physical copy. Six issues a year, every year, ideally. You subscribe for six issues. Current membership is twenty seven pounds for those six issues. However, we are investigating supplying it. Uh, digitally in addition to providing the physical copy. Fair enough. It, 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 it's merely a space issue for me. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the magazines when I used to be a member and I keep meaning to read up, but then I think I've got to find place to store things. I never throw anything out. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah. <Right>. Well, every, <laughs> about, about every five years, the, 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 there's a, you can get a, it's a, it's a memory USB. stick. USB, USB stick oh, okay. with, with um, download. Yeah, oh, the the back issues and it's updated about every five years, isn't it, Richard? That is correct. Give or take. Um, so. Yeah, you oh, only you can get uh, all the back issues from September 1966 to November two, 20, 2020 
I had to think about that um, <laughs> for the princely sum of forty pounds. Wow, excellent! Again, okay. details uh, and purchase from the society website. I, funnily enough, have it up on a separate browser at the moment looking at it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I got the USB stick. I just copied it straight to my computer. And I, I quite often, it's a starting point when I'm looking for for, for information on things. And I can, I can say it's, it's certainly, certainly some of those issues contain all the information that's been used for some of the mega army lists. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, uh... You know, it's, it's some you know the ones that particularly spring to mind are the the, the things like the Yamato era Japanese of which I have an army now, um, because Duncan Head some years ago did a, a fantastic multi uh, multi edition series. Um, he, he, was, he was doing it for DBMM lists, but he included just so much historical information. It's just generically useful if you're interested in it. And there's there are a number of those sort of examples scattered throughout Slingshot. It's a very, very good resource. It is also fully indexed. So um, you can type in for a, a random term such as hyperspist, for example, and it would find every reference in, to hyperspist in all 324 magazines. See, I'm a man of a certain age where that is genuinely exciting. It, it is, yeah. And, and <laughs> I also remember when I, when I first got the first USB stick that came out because because it predates th those original issues from way back in. Well, basically, they're as old as I am. <laughs> it was really good fun just going through some of the really old ones and seeing what the content was and just. It's a it's a history of ancient wargaming in its own right, pretty much. Yeah, you know. So if you which then just on a to amuse yourself, just dip into some of the old ones occasionally. Yeah, you, know, you look at some of the articles and you, and you go, "Oh my god, did we really think that?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, if anybody who's been wargaming, you know, certainly like I have since the nineteen eighties at least, yeah, you, you know. Slingshot was where the discussions happened. In fact, some of the letters pages, letters pages back then, uh, some some of the um, shall we say discussions <laughs> could get quite heated. <laughs> <laughs> so any, anyway, enough, enough of us <laughs> rambling down memory lane. I think Sorry. the upshot <laughs> is it's a great it's it's a great resource um, for, for if you're interested in ancient medieval history and wargaming that that period just as just as a it's a piece of history in itself <laughs> said to be sold i shall <laughs> get myself in gear and uh, so there we up. are so have we plugged the soa enough now richard or would you would you like another, uh, I, <laughs> another I think that's, that's perfectly acceptable <laughs> yeah and and and, and, sling, and slingshot under its current editor is, is going strong indeed and, uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's, there's always some something of interest in that. So, right. I think maybe at that point, chaps, we'll wrap this one up. Um, have a start out. Start having a think about what we might do next. Um, well, I, I we'll think the listeners, about. if they have an idea, they can send us a postcard electronically. Obviously, but maybe, yes, just, yes. If you've got, if you've got an idea. Some, some, a period like covered, a subject you like covered, um, 
whatever. So, you know, even if it's just a, a query that we can deal with, you know, this sort of rambling bit at the end after if we've done a history section and list section before, a bit, a bit where we can just maybe answer some questions. Um, yeah, up to you guys out there. Send in some stuff. But on that note, I think we shall say goodbye, good luck, and um, I suppose keep rolling skulls, unless you're playing me, in which case, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> and remember that S will always be the last combat in the line of shatters. After all the blanks. After all the blanks. Exactly. And, and one wound. <laughs> <laughs> and then your opponent will roll a skull. <laughs> and, and a final note for me. Thank you for Richard for the history. As entertaining as ever. I really enjoyed it. As thank always. you guys. So see you next time. <laughs>